Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Here at Therapist Uncensored, it is our great pleasure to bring to you a pioneer in interpersonal neurobiology and the neuroscience of psychotherapy. Our co-host, Patty Allwell, is very excited to bring this interview to you today as many of our listeners have expressed interest in us talking more directly about psychotherapy. And in today's interview with Dr. Cosalina, that's exactly what they do. They talk about the underpinnings of psychotherapy and why it is effective through a neurobiology lens. They also discussed how teachers can be effective in the classrooms and parents more effective in their jobs, all through applying the lessons of neurobiology to our human relationships and health. So we've all been fans of Dr. Cosalina for many, many years and have followed his work. So we are really happy to bring this interview to you today. Enjoy. Today, I am delighted to introduce you to Dr. Luis Cosolino. Dr. Cosolino has joined us today to talk about the newest edition of his book, The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy. Welcome. Thank you, Patty. It's good to be with you. Great to have you. I'm really a huge fan of all your work and have followed you for years, and I'm really excited about sharing you with our listeners. One of the things that you have spent years studying is why therapy is effective and sort of explaining that based on the neuroscience, and I'd love you to share that with our listeners. You know, I I had sort of two separate tracks in my education. One was learning how to be a therapist. I started out as doing pastoral counseling and then worked into the more professional or, or, you know, the sort of academic components of it. And simultaneously, I've always had an interest in brain evolution and development and um, what happens when brains are damaged and how that changes behavior. And I started both of these things in the 70s. And of course, psychotherapy was fairly well on its way by the 70s. And neuroscience was still in the dawn of its infancy, if that's redundant, but that's really what it was like. So you could become a master of what was known in neuroscience because there wasn't really that much there. You know, I think that one of the things that emerged for me as I studied both in parallel over the decades was that psychotherapy is a learning context. What therapists are trying to do is to stimulate learning, stimulate change. And the neurophysiologists and the neuroscientists were studying, well, what's the underlying mechanisms of neuroplasticity and learning and how does learning and change take place? So in a sense, I had one focus from two different perspectives and just studied both of those and then added more over the years. And I guess, you know, the the things that I learned and was able to sort of parallel or put against each other, maybe juxtapose is a better word, is, you know, what are the principles that have emerged in psychotherapy that result in positive change? On the one hand, the other hand is, what do we know about plasticity, the conditions for brain change, and how do we create that? And so the more I studied both sort of in parallel, the more I realized how psychotherapy had been guided by the invisible hand of neuroplastic principles from the beginning, and that it's just a matter of of having two separate languages for the same process. So that's sort of the 30,000-foot overview. Yeah, it's not an accident that Freud was a neurologist. No. I wonder, you know, you talk about the conditions for plasticity and the conditions for change 
in psychotherapy. And I wonder if you could elaborate. I know you talk about four common factors, and maybe if you could tell our listeners a little about what those are. One of the foundations from the first edition of the neuroscience of psychotherapy was that I went through school, and I don't know how many of how, if you or your listeners have had this experience, but I would go from class to class to teacher to teacher, and each one was trying to indoctrinate me or seemed to try to make me a disciple of their particular form of therapy. So I trained as a Rogerian therapist first, and then in cognitive behavioral therapy, systems therapy, you know, family systems therapy you name it, probably half a dozen different modalities of therapy. And I realized that each of them had something to offer and each of them had its limitations. And so one of the things that I I always had sort of fantasized about was thinking of a model of therapy and a model of change that would be non-denominational. What cuts across all the different forms of therapy, you know, when they work? What do they share in common? And the things that seem to come up from the literature, and I guess just from my own experience of them, well, the first one was that having a relationship and establishing a safe and trusting relationship is sort of the key to any successful therapy, even if the therapy doesn't focus on it. Like in cognitive behavioral therapy, training with person after person, I realized that those therapists that had a better bedside manner and were able to attune to their clients were successful. And no matter how good the the textbooks and the materials you have for cognitive therapy, it's really hard to be a successful cognitive therapist if you can't establish a good relationship. And I found that to be true in EMDR and in other forms of therapy as well, that, you know, at least on the surface, look very technique-focused. So the, the relationship seemed to be key. The second category was, and this, you know, this is more heavily from the neuroscience aspect, is maintaining a mild to moderate level of stress. In other words, the analysts talk about that balance of challenge and support in cognitive behavioral therapy. They talk about looking at SUDS level, levels of activation and arousal, and trying to regulate those and keep those relatively low. Well, if you look at the neuroscience and the, of plasticity, what you see is past a certain level of arousal, the brain actually becomes inhibited in new learning. It shifts from... Right memory systems related to updating and and expanding ideas and thinking and memory to shutting down, becoming habitual. And, uh, you know, the amygdala executive system takes over and kind of runs the body. So that's not a state of new learning. That's a state of fight or flight or shutdown. So the mild to moderate state of arousal is the second thing that seemed common across successful forms of therapy. The third piece is that you can't think your way through therapy alone and you can't feel your way through therapy alone. You really do have to have a combination of emotion and cognition in the process of working through. And so my suspicion from a neurobiological perspective is that's because we've really evolved two very separate brains, one on the left and one on the right hemispheres that are biased towards cognition and emotion. And that a lot of mental distress is a function of the dissociation between neural systems that are dedicated to the right or the left side. And then finally, the importance of narrative. Every therapy results in a story, and the story is both an explanation for what went wrong, but also contains an explanation for what you need to do to correct and stay corrected. And so it's sort of this, the stories contain a memory for the future. In other words, what you need to be able to do in order to 
continue to move towards health. So those are the four things that this, that I distilled and, you know, whatever, 15 or more years later. If I was going to start again, I might come up with something slightly different. I'd probably emphasize sort of body activation more. I think that in my therapy has moved in that direction. The importance of challenging yourself and creating exercises and, and living and all and really uh, being more active in the therapy and in life. But other than that, I think the basic principles still hold for me. I, I would stick to them. Could you explain what you mean by body activation? The brain is connected to the nervous system. It's embedded in it. It's embedded in the body. And I just think that over time, I've been in contact with more people that do more somatic forms of therapy. And, you know, even in the family systems therapy I did, there was a lot of movement and touching and family sculpting and all of those things. And there's a lot of power in navigating time and space or forcing yourself to navigate through time and space to activate brain regions that are sensory motor and that construct space-time, but they also feed into affect and cognition in ways that are helpful to therapy. One of the things with this new book that was kind of exciting for me was that you've added a chapter on the neurobiology of altruism, and I, mm. I wondered if you'd share your ideas on this. Yeah, I think I was working with, with a student, and one of my favorite books is Les Miserables, one of the things that's always stuck in my mind from literature and especially from that book is the crisis that was created in Valjean when the bishop gave him the candlesticks when he was brought to the house by the police and the crisis that was created in Valjean and the next few days of his life where he spent sort of like mindlessly and in a day sort of walking through his life half in the old ways of, you know, having a traumatic childhood, being in prison, and all of the defenses that he had built up against that, yet having that egg cracked in a way by the compassion that the bishop showed to him. They created a crisis of lack of faith as opposed to a crisis of faith. And so that was, a, was sort of a trigger for me to think about it. And what's happened simultaneously with all of the emphasis on mindfulness and compassion in the neuroscience literature I just became interested in looking at the brain regions that become activated when people either engage in or receive altruistic behavior. And what it looks like is that those regions are very much in line with the same regions that we're trying to activate in psychotherapy. In other words, we're trying to move people from isolation to connection. We're trying to move them from fear to vulnerability. We're trying to make them have a higher capacity for empathy, not just for other people, but also for themselves and start to treat themselves with compassion. And so the idea occurred to me that, you know, because when people engage in actual altruistic behavior, they describe these experiences, these experiences of their heart opening, of the connection with other people. The neuroscience supports that. And certainly there are forms of treatment like AA and other larger modalities where giving and taking care of and sponsoring people is a central part or component of the treatment. And so that's really what I've been working on. And one of my students now is doing a dissertation on this. And we're just weaving together the neurobiology with the literature about the effects of altruism, you know, psychologically, socially, physical health, all of those things, and trying to uh, come up with some ideas about how therapists can, I don't know, turbocharge is the right word, 
but maybe um, speed therapy along or make it more impactful by having clients involved in altruistic behavior as part of recovery and treatment. You had talked in the chapter about guided altruism, and I guess I was curious if you have some clinical interventions that you might recommend. Are you suggesting that a client do volunteer work or just that he does specific acts during the week, or how do you intervene with a client? The term guided altruism, to me, what I really meant to communicate with that or I mean to communicate is that it has to be specifically tailored to the client, your conceptualization of what's going on with them, and something that enhances their development as opposed to being part of the problem. If you have children, if you have codependent people that you're treating or people that engage in pathological caretaking, if there's a lot of self-denial, the altruistic behavior may be just reinforce the problems. So I don't think that you can accept altruistic behavior as just, okay, here's, here's another tool I can use whenever I have a client. I think it has to be used sort of strategically and specifically to with each client. Can you help me understand what some of the concrete things you might do? I get the caution about somebody who is very caretaking and pathologically caretaking. You don't want to send them out to do good works, but... What might you use with a client? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of the, the first case that comes to mind is, you know, someone who grew up with a lot of trauma and they became sort of obsessive and introverted about their own risk of diseases and they started to obsess about all the things that could go wrong. And they, they were well on their way to hypochondriasis. And after working with them, and uh, one of the things that we came up with was to work at Children's Hospital as a volunteer and be with children and read children and hold children who are going through pretty serious medical problems. Now, that might not be good for some other people. That just, like, pushed them over the edge. But for this person, the important thing was for them to be able to confront their fears, to make the connection. And and part of it was to help them realize just how healthy and lucky they were, you know, and that was something that came through. And the other was, you know, they, they were able to have the experience of that rush of being able to, whatever it is, oxytocin, adrenaline, you name it, whatever it is for any individual that they get from being selfless and giving themselves away. And it started, you know, it it affected the dialogue and therapy in the direction that I was hoping to take the client. That's an absolutely beautiful intervention. I really love that. You know, you have also done a lot of work in schools and with teachers. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could share with the listeners why you focused on that area so much. You know, I think about therapy for them. I mean, most therapy, it's an educational context that usually just has one teacher and one student, you know, sometimes a family. But I mean, psychotherapy is a specific form of education. It's It's a particular kind of classroom. And all of the principles from social neuroscience, from interpersonal neurobiology, I mean, you name it, all of those things are applicable to the classroom. When I began thinking about the work in education with a question to myself, which because I was never a a good student, I grew up with a lot of sort of uh, chaos in the house, a lot of stress, all sorts of problems that were going on in my life. 
And most of the time I didn't do well in school, but you know, every two or three years, I would be an A++ student in one particular class. I started with the question, well, what was it about those classes? Because I never knew, am, am I smart? Am I dumb? Because certainly if you look at the majority of classes, I'm not a very good student. But in some classes, you would think that I was the smartest guy around. So what was going on here? And the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that the, the classes that I excelled in were the classes where I fell in love with my teacher. There were the demand characteristics, the expectations that they had of me, but also my motivation to make them proud of me and to connect with them and to be part of their tribe, you know, to be a part of, of, of them and to be accepted. And so that was the first piece. And the second piece was I said, okay, so I guess in some ways some teachers probably considered me unteachable. So I started looking at the education literature and the popular literature and saying, well, what teachers have been able to teach unteachable students, right? You know, the students that everyone had given up on. And I found about a dozen cases from, you know, around the country of different teachers that had been, you know, so remarkably successful in teaching poor students that they got all sorts of distrust and criticism and, and rejection from their peers because they weren't going along with the fact that they were all stuck as teachers, not being right. able to teach students. The common factors all went back to those four principles from psychotherapy is that the teachers were able to create a tribe in the classroom. They leveraged an interpersonal context of availability, attachment, vulnerability that allowed the whole everyone in the class to regulate their affect, to reduce their arousal, and allow their brains to learn. And so what I did in the books that I've written about education has really all been about sort of, it's almost like turning around the emphasis in public education 180. It's like the tests don't matter if they're leading the charge. What matters are the relationships and what matters is the connection among the students and the type of social environment you make. And if you do that, the test scores will follow because that turns the brains on to learn. And that brings me to a quote of yours that I think I heard in an interview that I just loved. You were talking about giving teachers support for things they knew instinctively. You said teachers know that loving their kids is an intervention. Mm -hmm. And I was just so moved by that comment. Good teachers know. And I also think it's true of psychotherapy, that if you can't find something to love about a client, it's probably not a client you should be treating. Yeah, we're just not allowed to talk about loving our clients. It's counter-transference. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. I kind of break that law a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. You renegade you. I know, I know. So you have applied the lens of neurobiology and, and interpersonal neurobiology to psychotherapy, relationships, parenting, teaching, and culture. And I'm curious what you're thinking about right now, sort of where you're, you know, perhaps what you're writing, just what your focus is these days? Well, let's see. I mean, always a bunch of things. One of the things that's top of mind now, because I'm doing um, a considerable amount of corporate coaching, and that is having a deeper understanding of executive functioning, not just executive functioning in the, in the boardroom, but also executive functioning in the brain. 
And so I've been reworking, and this the reformulation is also in this third edition of Neuroscientist Psychotherapy. You know, the first edition was fairly classical as far as like what we all learn in school. It's that the frontal lobes are, or the prefrontal cortex is the executive system of the brain, which, you know, when I look back is so laughably simplistic. It's like I just shake my head and go, I'm kind of embarrassed that those books are still out there. But that was the dogma, you know, of the 20th century. But from what we see now, we've got at least three executive systems. You know, we've got the primitive or the, you know, the primary executive system, which has the amygdala at its core. We've got the one that probably is thought about most usually as the executive system, which is a frontal parietal system that constructs space and time and allows us to navigate the environment and problem solve. And then we have this third uh, executive system, which activates when we're not engaged with the environment and we're not frightened. And so the amygdala system is standing down and the parietal and frontal system is quiet. And there's a system, uh, the third one called the default mode network, which is a system, you know, that becomes active when we're uh, connected and attuned with other people and we're being self-reflective. You know, and there may be more. I don't know. This is just where we are at the moment. Well, we have to wait till the fourth edition to see if there's any, what else is going on. We've got these three executive systems. And if you look at, I'm looking at a shelf in my office with about 40 or 50 books on leadership and management. But they all point to the fact that you've got to be a good problem solver. You have to be able to be self-aware and connect with your people. And you have to be able to regulate affect and stay cool under fire. So those are the three executive systems. And they're all interwoven and they're all, you know, the amygdala system inhibits the other two. The frontal parietal system inhibits the uh, default mode network. So if we, we can distract ourselves from ourselves by being engaged in activities, right? Or being afraid or anxious can interfere with our ability to process information and solve problems. So in order to be a good executive or in order to have good executive function, you have to develop and integrate and balance these three systems. And being self-reflective and mindful is incredibly important in that process, as well as having good coping skills for stress and anxiety, self-care, as well as being well-educated. And so we're getting a more, an expanded, deeper, wider view of what executive functioning is. And so that's one of the areas that I'm focusing on now. And if anyone's interested, any of your listeners are interested, like I said, there are now three chapters on executive functioning in the third edition. And I go through the neuroscience of each of the networks and how they relate to the other two. What comes up for me as I'm listening is I have come from the corporate world, spent 20 years in a corporate environment. And certainly the idea of a good manager has shifted over the decades because you know, I sort of think of your talk about alphas and betas, and mm -hmm. I wonder if you feel like historically it's been, you know, being a manager in the corporate world was much more about being an alpha and sort of not so much about the kind of skills you're talking about today. Yeah, I, I think definitely it's evolving. The demands on executives now, to me, are... are along with the diversity of the people that you're working with and the complexity and all of the disruptive technology, you name it, 
There are so many things that you've got to deal with now that you didn't have to deal with before. It requires much more sophisticated processing, communication, and thought. And so, you know, I agree with you 100%. Maybe you could explain for the listeners what your alpha beta that I'm referring to is so they understand a little. Where this originates from is I started studying, I don't know, five or six years ago, I started studying groups of animals and how they interact and how they coordinate behavior and how different animal species have different hierarchical structures, and some are matriarchal, some are patriarchal. That was the thing I think that interested me first. And then there are different ways that status is maintained or status is challenged. So all of this stuff varies. We're kind of myopic because we think about humans or we think about gorillas. But, you know, it's interesting. Like, for example, like meerkats are matriarchal. And one of the things that alphas do in a a social community is that they control territory and reproduction. So one of the ways that the uh, alpha female controls reproduction is that she randomly and unexpectedly attacks the other females. It raises their cortisol levels and other biological changes in them that decreases their fertility. So every species has its own way of unconscious group organization that has been shaped through natural selection to optimize survival of that particular group, given predators, food sources, environment, all of those different things. Flashback to humans now, I've also, for my entire career, been interested in what John Bradshaw called the term core shame. He called it toxic shame, but I call it core shame. Shame is There's a sort of everyday shame, like you've done something bad and you're ashamed of yourself. You know, you stole someone's lunch money or something and you should be ashamed. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about so many of my clients and myself as well have this feeling of being inadequate or being bad or having done something wrong that we can't remember doing, but we just feel as if we're not fully entitled like other people. So we end up feeling like the kid, like the kid at the table, or we step back and let other people lead or, you know, or any of a million varieties of these things. And psychologists have always, you look at core shame and you say, okay, well, this is a function of of, uh, insecure attachment, bad parenting, early abuse or whatever. But I find that people with core shame don't necessarily have any of those things. And so one day the light bulb went off and I and what came to me, and I, I have a lot of confidence that there's some truth to this, is that core shame in human beings is almost like an evolutionary, almost like a vestigial organ like our tailbones, right? The core shame we experience is kind of a leftover from before we had language and culture where status could be expressed and organized and agreed upon. Before we could elect people, we just competed with each other for status, and we didn't even know why we were doing it. But think about it. If you had a a species where there was no language or culture, and natural selection discovered that having the strongest male or the strongest female, or like with elephants, the oldest female, the smartest female being the alpha, how would you shape it? How would you keep that particular animal in that position? One of the best things to do would be to have the other animals always defer to that animal. So what core shame, I think, is it's an evolutionary artifact that as our minds developed and our sense of self developed, 
it's sort of resting upon this biology, this parasympathetic biology of standing down and standing back and always thinking that you're not good enough. And what that does is it creates a vacuum in a group that allows the alpha to move in and coordinate the group. That's another idea I'm playing with and working on. And perhaps I'm applying this incorrectly, but it feels to me like historically when I was in the corporate world, that was often how things were organized. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But again, you know, the org- the most organizations, in fact, I, don't, I can't even think of one I've worked for that hasn't been. Most organ- organizations are organized by the patriarchy and along those traditional primate lines. So our institutions are just reflections of our psyches, of our biology. Yeah, the Constitution, all men are created equal. Well, it didn't apply to slaves. It didn't apply to women. It didn't apply to children. <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I also am really intrigued because you seem to be turning your gaze more towards social justice, perhaps, and encouraging psychotherapists to get out of their office and be more active in the world? I don't know. I think that one of the things that psychotherapy as a profession has suffered from is the isolation of the consulting room. We can create these little kingdoms that we're in control of, and we pick our furniture and our little plants, and we sit there, and um, we have this tiny little world that we reign over, and I think it's too small. I am not someone to go out in the streets and protest I mean, at least I haven't been so far, but my suspicion is that psychotherapy would benefit from us being more vocal, from us uh, encouraging our clients to take reality more seriously, to move away from the Freudian perspective where reality doesn't matter. I think a lot of people are attracted to psychotherapy as a profession because they struggle with their involvement in the world, because they don't feel adequate. It's a good place to hide. People come to you and they admire you, they fall in love with you, all of that stuff goes on, but I don't know how much we help clients by having so much of a distance between the consulting room and the world and how much what we do can generalize in that context. And it feels like it's really important for certain populations to make that link. You know, if out in the world their position is not safe or not recognized or they don't have power, it feels almost immoral to just sort of convince them that what really needs to be changed is them. Right, right. And I think that was Marx's position on on psychoanalysis. Oh, (laughs) I didn't know I was quoting Marx, but... (laughs) Yeah, you, you communist, you. He saw religion that way, too, you know, as sort of it was a way to religion can get people to stop focusing on on the sort of day to day life and focus on the afterlife. You know, that's why he called it the opium of the people. You keep them controlled with religion. And if you look at the history of the church and the history of the Reformation, you can certainly make a case for that. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, believe that before I came up with the idea. It's the same thing with psychotherapy. If psychotherapy is making you happy with or trying to make you adapt to unjust situations, then you have to really wonder of, uh, you know, it may be a Band-Aid on something that really needs air to heal. Right. Well, this has been so stimulating and so interesting, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. And for our listeners, please check us out at therapistuncensored.com. Sign up for our email list and join us again. 
Thank you. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Olwell, and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.